Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. I am your host, Craig Hanks, here with, uh, let's just say, this is going to be a special episode because it's out of our norm. It's an author's shelf episode. I am bringing back returning guest, Austin Freeman. Austin, how are you? Doing great. You know, I... Austin, last time you were on, we talked to Tolkien, and that was a, a great conversation. For those who haven't heard it, go back. It's it's only a f- few months back, maybe, so it shouldn't be hard to find on our feed. Uh, and I really enjoyed that conversation. And so we invited you back for an author's shelf episode. Um, and remind everybody of, of your book, if you would, for me, Austin. Uh, sure. So the book uh, is Tolkien Dogmatics, uh, Systematic Theology of Tolkien, more or less. It's a uh, an exhaustive sort of one-stop shop treatment of Tolkien's theological thought organized by doctrine. So it's it's not a spiritual or Christianized reading of The Lord of the Rings. This is the only book that I'm aware of that deals with Tolkien as a man, as a theological thinker, not necessarily theologizing his fiction. So I use the fiction right. a lot to illustrate Tolkien's uh, theological system, but uh, it, it's primarily focused on Tolkien as, as a uh, theologian in his own right. Yeah. And we had an amazing conversation about that. I got my copy. Uh, it's it's already, I wouldn't say well-worn, but it's getting that way. Uh, so people should go check that out, Tolkien, Tolkien Dogmatics. Um, but today, so I, I just set that up to say, that's why you're on the author's shelf, because, uh, you know, Got to get got to get published before we can bring you on the author's shelf. And uh, I said, Austin, what do you want to read? And you came back with Dante's Inferno. And yeah, holy smokes. And so so I get that message and I'm like, oh boy, uh, I don't know. Holy smokes. Yeah, there you go. Holy smokes. That's, <laughs> that's one of those phrases you wonder, uh, you know, we have these, uh, these phrases that we uh, got from Shakespeare and mm-hmm. nobody realizes it. It's just completely the water we swim in linguistically. Yeah. Uh, and one, one wonders if Holy Smokes can trace itself back to Dante's, Dante's Inferno. Uh, anyway, so I get this, uh, get the message back. Okay, we're doing Dante's Inferno. And I'm like, oh, oh no, oh no. We have to go from the legendary lowbrow all the way to Dante's Inferno. Okay, it's going to be a challenge. And for those watching on YouTube, you know what I'm talking about because here I am over on my side of the screen in my t-shirt, my hoodie. Uh, I am I am just lowbrow or, you know, I strive toward the middle brow, but I'm like lowbrow incarnate. And then there's Austin with his shirt and his tie and his fancy university position, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, anyway, it's, I just, I always get a big kick out of uh, when we have to elevate ourselves because I I get get nervous. This podcast is one of the best conversations I've had about the book, actually, Craig. So uh, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be so (laughs) fast to uh, bracket yourself down there. Oh, I have to I I have to set low expectations so that people get uh, uh, so they're impressed when, you know, I pull out some, you know, some quote from a medieval philosopher. I'm so learned. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> I know. I know. Sultan needs him by heart. Uh, okay. So, Divine Comedy, Austin. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody who comes on the author shelf. Why did you choose this book? Okay. So, when I was a classical school teacher, the Divine Comedy was one of the assigned texts uh, that we had in our sophomore medieval uh, literature class. 
And if you are unfamiliar with the classical school model, uh, yes, indeed, we do read medieval literature in 10th grade, and it includes Beowulf and Canterbury Tales and uh, all sorts of other things, Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, but this was the one that that bowled me over. And so this is actually my copy from when I when I first began teaching it. And uh, it is it is well marked and well noted. This is the Oxford World's Classics translation. So this is the C.H. Sisson translation, which if you guys have not read it before, this is probably the one that I would recommend. Uh, this is a translation that I can't actually like hand to a high schooler and have them comprehend most of it. Uh, and the the book itself is really, you know, it's only this chunk uh, and all of the rest. Right. It's one of those texts with lots of commentary. And uh, yeah. Don't don't try to read the comedy by yourself because you're going to miss so much. It's such a dense text in terms of its allusions and its references that here is all of the guide notes. Um, but it is a poem. And so despite the fact that this looks like a well, big, thick book, it, it really goes very quickly. You know, I you you say that, and I I get why you say that, and I agree with you to a large extent. But I I looked it up because it had been a while since I dipped in. Uh, so I, I go to the back. I'm like, wait, how many lines is this? And it's like, how many like ten thousand lines or something so, like that? So uh, Dante, this is not a poem about hell, right? The, so you you correctly say this is the Divine Comedy, or as Dante called it himself, the Commedia, just the comedy. Uh, called right. so not because it is uh, humorous, but because it has a happy ending. And that's right, the, the as original. opposed to what what was comedy versus tragedy? Yeah, tragedy. So, yeah. Um, Dante calls it the comedy because it's a movement from hell to heaven, and so reading only the Inferno is really like reading the first Harry Potter book, or only watching uh, Star Wars: <laughs> A New Hope, or uh, I think more appropriately, uh, given my context, it's like. A lot of people, when when the Fellowship of the Ring came out in two thousand and one, and it's just sort of Frodo and Sam walking down into the distance, and then the credits roll, and everybody's really confused. They're like, "Is that it? Where's the rest of the movie?" And they don't realize that this yeah. is only the first part of a much larger narrative. So, um, the, the 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 comedy as a whole, if you've read any of it, you've read the Inferno. But Inferno is right. only the it's only the the exposition the climax isn't even in inferno uh, it's it's but it's honestly one of the greatest texts ever written just objectively uh objectively genius and dante himself well, go, go go ahead no 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 go for it go for so it dante himself in the inferno when they get to the the um the second circle the the or the first circle the circle of the righteous pagans he goes into this uh castle and, and they meet uh, all of the other epic poets. They meet Homer and uh, Lucan and, the, and Ovid and these people. And Virgil, of course, is Dante's guide. He's he's the one that travels with Dante through the underworld. And and it says, they they welcomed me as one of their company, Dante says. So in other words, he says, yeah, I'm, I am in there with Homer and Virgil as the great epic poets of all time. Uh, <laughs> no and, pressure. Yeah, or, well, yeah it's a pretty air humility pretty arrogant statement to make except you know <laughs> here we are and he was right so it's only boasting if it's not true i guess i i yeah no it's i think that's fair if you if you recognize your your place that's okay uh although yeah i i think there's no there's no um 
there's no bones about it. That's an arrogant thing to say in the moment because you don't know how your work is going to be received. And as I understand it, look, I'm no scholar of the Divine Comedy, but I know that when it first came out, it was pretty well regarded for a long time. But then it fell out of favor and people were really crapping on it through the Enlightenment years. And it, maybe not crapping on it, but just saying, uh, you know, forget it. It wasn't that important anymore. We, you know, we're enlightened now. We don't need these versions of heaven and hell and all that stuff. Uh, and it wasn't until what the 19th century, maybe that it kind of really got resurrected as well, it's the same foundational thing. Beowulf, right. So, so right. when Beowulf was discovered, it was revolutionary. It was impactful. People started taking it apart and realizing, you know, maybe this is not all we thought it was. And it wasn't until Tolkien published the monsters and the critics that Beowulf began to be widely read again. Um, but with Dante, yeah, you've got about 700 years worth of secondary literature uh, in the, the generation immediately after Dante, including his sons, uh, were already starting to write full length commentaries on the book. And it has remained a cultural touchstone ever since. I mean, Dante more or less invented the modern Italian language in this mm. poem. So one of the so a bit like. Um... A bit like uh, uh, the Canterbury Tales that way or something. But this is the, or this Shakespeare. Is the foundation. Um, so he didn't write it in Latin. That was one of the revolutionary things is he wanted to show what his own native dialect could do. And that was a, you know, sort of like a, a Wycliffe scenario. He wants to bring epic poetry to the people. He wants to give access to people and to um, elevate the language of the common man into the realm of myth and legend and uh, prime literature. You're talking about the Wycliffe uh, uh, translation of the Bible, yeah, right? So let's, let's, make, let's yeah. give it to people that are actually able to read it and, and in, a, in their heart language, as it were. Yeah. So let's give a, a little bit more of a footing for it. Well, I guess anybody who's still listening at this point, 10 minutes into the podcast, I'm, I'm sure that you're at least roughly familiar, but we'll split uh, the inferno or sorry it will split it into its three parts get the inferno you've got uh purgatory and then paradise it's dante uh on an ascension narrative mm -hmm. where he starts in hell and has to climb out with his guides you know mm -hmm. moving through and, and seeing well <laughs> the divine comedy really yeah. uh, that happy ending trying to get to the highest level of hell uh so that's it, it comes in three parts. I just looked it up. It's 14,000 lines. Okay. Uh, and just for, for reference, because, you know, you say, oh, it's not that long. It's pretty easy to get through. It's three or four times the size of Beowulf. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, it, the, the ep longest epic poems I have read uh, more than once would be Tolkien's, actually, his unfinished versions of, uh, like, the tale of Baron and Luthien and whatnot. And he didn't quite finish them, but if he had, they would have clocked in at four or 5,000 lines probably. Um, and that this one is 14,000. So it is, it, it is a bit of a, a chunk to bite off, right? It is, but, but by no means is it going to take you as long as the Lord of the Rings or, or like a sure. modern fantasy novel, like a, uh, like a Robert Jordan wheel of time or something like that. And part of the reason why it, part of the reason why it flows so quickly or why it seems to go so fast is because even like Dante is such a genius. He's so deliberate in everything that he's doing here that even his rhyme scheme has a theological message. Oh man. Yeah. yeah so, it's okay. So can we, can we just 
abandon the narrative all <laughs> all ye who enter here abandon the narrative and narrative and let's talk symbolism because it's one of those things i don't know about everything but he was writing an allegory in which he wanted pretty much everything to have a meaning including mm-hmm. the kind of meta text mm-hmm. uh as you say you know every there's there are three main poems and they're it's uh, 99 cantos Plus with Plus an additional chorus yep so even right one. right and, and so then, so everything is kind of divisible by three there's some sevens and and a lot of nines in there even some tens uh, which i thought was really interesting because in the old testament 10 is a uh, is a uh, as i understand it a godly number Mm-hmm. Um, but in this one, nine is the godly number because it's divisible by three. And then mm-hmm. when we're in the inferno, we have a tenth uh, circle making it, you know, hellish and ungodly, right? Because it's not divisible by three. Yeah, so like, there's not, there's, there's just so much of that stuff. The vestibule, which is which is, is not hell proper, but it, it right, but up to ten, yeah. Um, so there's a reason for all of this, and before Dante begins writing this journey. He's in the universities in Florence and other places, and he's studying uh, Dominican theology, and he's studying Thomistic theology, and he's uh, getting back into philosophy because this this book is for Dante, not just a story. It's also sort of his self-redemptive narrative that he accuses himself of having forsaken the primary good, which is God, in pursuing uh, political or artistic glory. And so that's where the poem starts. He says, midway along the journey that we all must take, I found myself lost in a dark wood. Uh, and, and he sort of just, it begins as epic poems do in media race, just in the middle of things, just thrown in. And he's already lost. He finds that he's lost and he can't get out by himself. He, his life is not going the way that he thought it would. And he remembers that he was supposed to be headed somewhere. His life is supposed to have some sort of a goal. And he sees the goal in the distance, but he can't quite reach it because there are these beasts that are lost in the forest. And every time he tries to escape, these beasts hunt him down, these besetting sins of lust and pride and uh, vanity. And, all, all, uh, and so he almost gives up hope. And uh, sent from heaven, uh, his former love, uh, perhaps uh, not returned love, probably not. Uh, Beatrice uh, sends uh, Virgil from the underworld to come and guide Dante through the afterlife in a final last ditch attempt to save his soul. And so that's why we begin in Inferno, is that Dante has to sort of descend into the depths and realize the ultimate natural outcome of the form of life that he has chosen. And so Virgil guides him through each of the different sins represented by the levels of the the funnel-shaped inferno, and it moves from the least bad sins all the way down to the worst, which is pride. Uh, And so Dante actually starts, the the least bad sin in hell is lust, which is interesting to us in our modern culture, I think, Mm a lot of church folks, holy rollers, would, would want to put lust down there as, as the really bad one. But for Dante, if the proper love of a human life is God, uh, then the next best thing would be something made in the image of God, which would be a human being. Um, so 
if you're going to be an idolater, then being an idolater of a person is the is the least bad thing you can do. Um, but he, he's got all of this logic for how he ranks these sins, and the punishment fits the crime or each of these sins. So those the lustful, for example, are blown about by winds of passion. They have no settled uh, firmness in themselves, and so that's their fate as they're blown along in this black hurricane uh, forever and ever. And Virgil represents human reason because, as you said, it's an allegory. And so Dante is able to use his philosophy. He's able to use his uh, unguided, non-revelatory knowledge in order to see the consequences of a life of vice and uh, to begin to detach himself and his habits uh, from these sorts of activities. And once he gets to the depths and once he gets to the sin, which is the most insidious of all, namely pride or self-idolatry, uh, then Dante turns the corner and he is able to live his life, his earthly life in a virtuous way. And so, whereas Inferno is a funnel that goes down from uh, down to the worst, Purgatorio is a mountain on the opposite side of the world. Uh, and With there's a, a spiral around the mountain and it goes um, from the worst to the least bad. And so he's sort of freeing himself of the burdens of these vices and learning to live virtuously. Uh, so he's freed himself of bad habits. Now he's beginning to develop these good habits. Uh, and so he says the soul naturally ascends upward towards God. The thing that's keeping it down is sin, metaphorically, in, in this allegorical uh framework. And so as he throws off the shackles of each of these sins, he's ascending higher and higher until he gets to the top of uh, the mountain of purgatory. We have the Garden of Eden, the earthly paradise. This is the pinnacle of what human life on this earth can be separated from God, separated from the divine. And this is where Virgil leaves him because philosophy can go no further here. If you want to penetrate into the ultimate mysteries, you not, you can't just rely on philosophy. You have to move into divine revelation. You have to go into to the truths of scripture or the truths that are revealed in Christ and in the Trinity. And so from there, Dante ascends from the top of Mount Purgatory up into the heavens. And here it's very literally the, the heavens. It's the, the solar system. And he moves through the spheres of the crystalline spheres of each of these planets and out of space and time itself. And the poem ends with Dante's direct vision of God. And when I say ends, I mean it just ends. Because, it just ends. <laughs> yeah, because what can you say when you're met with the ultimate unsayable, with the fountain of all being in existence? And so you, you see and uh, you are taken up into this love and uh, there's nothing else to say after that. You have met your ultimate goal. There's nowhere else to go. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's interesting to me that there are there are two uh, two sides to the coin you were just talking about uh, with Virgil being the philosophical guide. Um, you know, as you say, you can go no further. This is as far as philosophy can take you. But on the other side of that coin, the reason Beatrice, his kind of idealized uh, feminine character, the reason she can't be his guide through the entire thing is that um, the divine, you know, she's an angelic figure. She mm -hmm. can't descend into hell. She can't do that, which I think is, shall we call it theologically very interesting that there are places that the divine can't go or, you know, shouldn't go or something. Well, like so that, Beatrice right? does, she, um, she descends briefly into the, the abode of the righteous pagans to come and get Virgil and send him to take Dante. And then she goes back up. And there's one other right. instance 
uh, which is one of my favorite instances in the entire book uh, where an angel shows up in hell. It's very, it's, oh, it's, yeah? always, oh gosh, I forgot. So it's always significant when, um, when Virgil can't do something. So right. there's, there's maybe three or four places. Virgil is very confident. He's, he's very wise, but whenever Virgil comes up against demons in the story, they always are able to trick him and manipulate him and Virgil is at a loss. And so that happens uh, two, at least two times in Inferno that I'm thinking of. The first time is they get down to level six to, to the city of Dees, the infernal city. It's this uh, city that's blazing hot like iron uh, that's been heated. And there are thousands and thousands of demons that are blocking the way and they will not open the gate. Virgil has been able to sort of move Dante effortlessly through uh, all of the other guardians of Inferno because he's on this divinely sanctioned quest, much like Blues Brothers, uh, except older. <laughs> and, okay. and so, but then when all you right. to, A plus, A plus reference, Austin, well when done. When you get to the city of Dees, you find yourself confronted with these demons. The whole reason they're demons is because they don't care about being obedient to God. And so they're just going to leave him there. They call Medusa and the Gorgons and Dante is going to die. And so Virgil is upset. He's trying to hide it from Dante. And then in the background, they hear this disturbance. And you know, in that, that scene in Jurassic Park where the water starts to the water, yeah, something is coming. They hear all of these uh, souls howling in fear, this big rushing wind. And so they're waiting for something that's coming. And maybe now they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, except off in the distance on the other side of the hellish swamp, there's this light that's approaching. And it's not a monster, it's an angel. And it says all of these horrors around this angel. And the only thing that seems to bother him is that he's sort of waving his hand in front of his eyes because the air smells bad. And just carefree as can be, totally unintimidated, the angel walks up to this big flaming hot bars of the city of Dees that's manned by 10,000 demons. And it, it, it sort of tells them off for being rebels. And he just taps the door and it bursts open and he turns around and leaves and that's it. He's accomplished his mission and Virgil and Dante are able to continue on their quest. And every time I teach this, I always ask the students, who is this angel? And, uh, or, or who is this figure? And some of them want to say, oh, it's Jesus, or oh, it's Michael, or oh, it's Gabriel. No, it's nobody. It's just a random angel. And that's the point, is that the, the least significant, like the, 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 the least remarkable figure in God's heaven is so much more powerful and so much more overwhelming than all of these armies of demons that he just busted open without an effort. You don't have to send Michael. You don't need Michael. Any, any of them could do this. Uh, and so that's another reason why Dante is so compelling to me is because in our modern culture, it's the evil that fascinates us. It's always the dark characters or the anti-heroic characters or the twisted characters that um, that are the ones that you dress up like for Halloween. They're the ones that you find fascinating. I mean, even Darth Vader and Stormtroopers, that's what the kids have on the boxes. Um, and there are very few works of literature that make the good as fascinating as evil and lord of the rings is one of them right we do uh, the the ring rapes are cool 
but Gandalf is also cool and Aragorn is also cool. And, and, and it's just not as common to find those heroes being idol, being, I don't want to say idolized, being uh, admired <laughs> uh, to, to the same extent as uh, a really compelling villain. And Dante, you know, you, you say that, and I, I think that's true in the text itself. But mm -hmm. as you kind of alluded to earlier, uh, the the more commonly known title of this work is Dante's Inferno, because that's mm -hmm. what people read in college or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. They know it as Dante's Inferno, not necessarily the Divine Comedy, because I think we do, you know, if we step outside of the text, we do see that first part and go, that's the cool stuff. That's what I want to read. The, no. the fire and the hooks and the whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's it's flashy and uh, it's entertaining because this is where Dante is sort of uh, skewering his political enemies that exiled him from Florence uh, and <laughs> shoving shoving corrupt popes down baptismal font tubes and things like that. But um, there's plenty of stuff. There's there's great, great passages in Purgatorio and in Paradiso. I mean, uh, Purgatorio is in, Inferno is more about the self and the inward life and then uh Par uh, Purgatorio is more about life in community. It's the, the political life because time passes there. It's, it's on earth. It's just on the other side of the globe. And so uh, Purgatorio is an allegory for life of politics and then, uh, and of human virtue. And then when you get to Paradiso, there really isn't a plot anymore. It's just a series of dialogues. You lose all of the remarkable visuals that you get in Inferno uh, and to a lesser extent in Purgatorio. And it becomes more about contemplation of eternal truths. So the form of the poem mimics the content that is being talked about. Dante's language changes. When he gets down to the bottom of Inferno, he uses more guttural sounding Italian words than he does uh, when he starts. Mm -hmm. And when he gets to the, the top of Paradiso, to the presence of God, this is the most exalted melodious language in the poem. So um, this reflection of things from the, the, the lesser, the shadowy, the temporal, the passing away up to the eternal transcendent um, yeah, you got to have that because uh, you're misinterpreting Dante if you only think that he's just this sort of uh, haunted house tour guide that's taking you around all of these grisly torments. That's the least <laughs> important thing that happens in the book. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I suppose from a, an eternal perspective, that's true. You know, if you if you believe in the things that Dante believed in, then yeah, that's true. Uh, but there is a, when you say least important, I, I do, I don't know, bristle isn't the right word, but I, I do, my ears perk up a little bit at that phrase, uh, because there's a concept that, that we still use today, um, it, but it comes from the New Testament, right? So uh, Christ dies on the cross, and then he has to, he goes to purgatory, mm -hmm. uh, and then three days later ascends to heaven. All, or whatever it is, uh, three days later comes back, but he ascends to heaven after sense. going through purgatory and, and freeing those there, etc. So there's, uh, as the great philosopher Steve Miller of the Steve Miller band yeah, yeah. sang, you have to, you, you've got to go through hell before you get to heaven. Mm -hmm. That concept, uh, it doesn't come from Dante, but, uh, but that's, it, 
his version of it is what we all think of now, right? This, you, you have to go through hell before you get to heaven. So when you say it's the most important or the least important part of the book, I go, well, you know, it's, it's the part that illustrates the importance of the others. And so I don't know. I don't know if I can quite get on board with, with that well, so classification. Me, I don't know. Is that fair? Let me give you a metaphor. I see where you're going, Craig. But let's say this. Uh, if I go out to the parking lot um, and my car has a boot on the tire, it can't go sure. anywhere, right? Um, my number one priority in order to, to go any further is get that boot off of my car, right? So that right now, that is the most important thing I can be doing. But the goal of getting in the car is not to get the boot off. It's to turn it on and drive to the Grand Canyon. And, and in that sense, getting the boot off the car is just the thing that I've got to take care of before my real journey starts. And so I think that's what Dante is trying to tell us is, is he's reminding us that the human life as it is currently lived in bondage to sin or, or in this fallen world that we participate in is not the way human life actually is or is supposed to be. It is the distraction uh, or the, uh, the detour that we have got to fix for ourselves uh, well, can't fix for ourselves, that has got to be fixed for us before the real business of human life can actually take place. Uh, and so uh, chronologically, yes, it's the most important that you that you are purified from this uh, sin and that you move through this hell so that you can get into the, the better business of living. But in terms of a uh, logical priority, uh, it's the contemplation of the divine that Dante ends the poem with. That's the, the point of this whole journey. That's why Beatrice sends Virgil to go and get him, uh, is in order for Dante to be able to get to the top of the mountain and to, to see the face of God. That's what I meant. No, no, that's, I think it's totally fair. I think that's a, a great point. Far be it from me to, you know, uh, stress an argument with Austin Freeman. That, oh, that's no, a, I appreciate a mistake I'm not going to make. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, okay, so let's can can we talk symbolism here for a minute? I've got a question for you, and and then I, I can relate maybe my favorite uh, lost bit of knowledge that is illustrated by uh, by Dante. Anyway, the question is, how much symbolism did Dante create? And how much did he kind of solidify? We've talked about the numerological aspect of it. Mm -hmm. we, and we haven't really talked much about the actual visuals of, of the Inferno. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, a lot of popular conceptions of what heaven is, what purgatory is, what hell is, mm -hmm. uh, come from our understanding or our residual cultural understanding of, uh, of the divine comedy, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, how much did he create? How much was he synthesizing from the world around him? Do you have any idea on that? Yeah, so Dante is a medieval. And if you read something like C.S. Lewis's The Discarded Image, Lewis says the, the medievals were synthesizers, right? They were the people that loved, they would have like a big card catalog of all knowledge. And they just love putting that stuff in order and making it all fit together. And so in, in terms of the larger scale images of what hell or purgatory or heaven are like. Dante is not very original, and he, nor does he intend to be. Uh, he is picking up on pre-existing images from the culture and from other artistic uh, movements at the time. In terms of the specifics, uh, such as, for example, having Satan frozen in, in the middle of a lake uh, and his 
three faces and nine wings and all of that sort of yeah the dante is dante is coming up with that um even the pictures of the demons that you that you get in circle eight of the the winged sort of animal figures with pitchforks and the the boiling tar uh, those are things that were already present in medieval art, uh, maybe not in medieval theology, but certainly in popular culture of the time. And so he's drawing on that well in order to make his point, and then he's taking it further and overlaying specific allegorical meanings on top of these general uh, concepts. So I think he, I think it's that thing that you said where he's he's synthesizing and then extending it. So, yeah. for instance, there's not, to my knowledge, there's not a lot written about what the shape of pur the shape of purgatory as a, a tropical island on the other side of the world, and it's got seven terraces and whatnot. And, and um, but there is stuff about how uh, the Garden of Eden was on originally on top of a mountain, uh, for instance. So he mm. is very aware of current culture. He's very aware of the biblical story, and he's very aware of the history of theology. Uh, and so he weaves all of these things together. For the medievals, it's not as important to be original. O the originality, authenticity, it's, that's, that's not something that stresses them out. Um, they, will, they will take uh, unaccredited lots of things that other people have said and then just repackage them. And we know this because one of the, I spoke about the rhyme scheme earlier. One of the reasons why Dante chose the rhyme scheme that he did, Terza Rima, is because you can't mess with it. Uh, it's it's A, B, A, uh, B, C, B, C, D, C. So each stanza, the rhyme scheme relies on the line from the stanza above it. And so you can't sort of chop things out and move things around uh, without it being evident and without it disrupting the rhyme scheme. And so we, we know that that was happening. Dante is deliberately taking pains to sort of copyright protect his work because other people are doing that. <laughs> um, and so oh, the, wow. the, do, do I think that Dante is concerned to create an entirely new picture of, of hell and purgatory and heaven? No, I don't even think that's what Dante thought was the important contribution of this story. It, it's really three or four stories in one. And the, the visual surface level image, again, I'll use the phrase least important. It's also uh, uh, a poem about politics and about human corruption mm -hmm. and, and the, the right form of worldly justice. It's a poem about the individual soul and its ascent to God. It's a poem about the whole cosmos and how it is governed and why evil exists and what virtue is and how heaven is organized. And uh, if you're in the lowest circle of heaven, how can you be happy? All, there's all these people ahead of you. Uh, there's all these people that have more blessedness than you do. Aren't you jealous of them? Dante asks. And the souls say, no, our glory is in playing our proper role in God's story. And so the happiest we are is when we're exactly where we're supposed to be, where God has put us. Uh, and so the, these bigger picture questions about what human life is for and what eternity is like, it's just, it's all these layers, uh, pun intended, of uh, story that are just smushed on top of each other. And the the images of the infernal torments or the uh, 
statues that he sees on the side of the mountain in Purgatorio, those are sort of just like the coat rack that he's hanging all the rest of his meaning on. Right. Yeah, you you said, for, first of all, as you, you were uh, pun, perhaps unintended saying, I, I love this idea of the, the seven layers. Um, it makes me wonder if, uh, you know, the great wedding cakes are all seven layer cakes. We love seven layer bean dip is, yeah. is which one is heaven, which one's hell. That's, yeah, that's for you to decide. Uh, <laughs> you said. Is there like that, a, uh, is that the sort of thing too? That's like a oh, multi-layered Thanksgiving dish. Oh, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That what's the purgatory version of this? Yeah. That's uh yeah. Some, some dessert at a church dance mm -hmm. uh, would be your, okay. Let's not chase that too far. <laughs> so, um, Oh, what was I going to say? Right. You said something about, Oh yeah. Uh, synthesizers. And, and we, you kind of alluded to the idea that we value originality today, mm -hmm. perhaps more than it was valued at the time. Um, and I would, I would, think I would agree with that. At least we think we value originality, but then you think about the things that are the most beloved, the most popular. Um, it, today, it would be like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or okay, maybe five years ago. Uh, the MCU, down to Star Wars, and Tolkien. Let's take Tolkien. Uh, for those who heard my conversation with uh, Tom Shippey a little while ago, we were talking about Tolkien and the Beowulf poet both as these great synthesizers um, where there's there there are original things in the Lord of the Rings but not all that many when you drill down into it Tolkien was a great synthesizer mm -hmm. of bringing concepts and uh, you know literature together into one place and then delivering it to you in a package that uh, mm -hmm. is uh, that's easily digestible. Uh, and this is a type of genius all its own. Mm -hmm. So that's what Dante is doing. Uh, if I am hearing you right, he's a great medieval synthesizer. And that that is genius. How, how uh, perversely ambitious for somebody like Dante to say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a story. And somebody says, what's it about? And he says, everything everything the world it's about everything and you know, so he's he's taking information from all around him and funneling it into one story about everything right it's so uh, pretty this, pretty remarkable and as this is another c.s lewis quote uh he says that no one should ever set out to try to be original whenever you try to whenever you try to be original you will find that you've done the same thing as as a thousand other people i mean look at all of look at any of our current like subcultures all of these subcultures that want to buck the trend of normalcy and they all end up looking and, and sounding and, and behaving exactly the same. Um, so C.S. Lewis <laughs> says, don't try to be original. Try to tell the truth the best you can and the originality will follow on its own. And I think that's what's going on with Tolkien and Dante and these other people is Dante's not, I mean, in some ways he's trying to do what nobody else has done. He is a poet and he is uh, moving towards that novelty but it, he it's because he's trying to press the envelope forward he's not trying to reject the things that have come before he's trying to extend it into new territories and so the reason why dante is a genius having synthesized all of this stuff is because dante has a unique life as anyone does he has a a, a an idiosyncratic perspective on the nature of reality and as he's honestly expressing his view and his vision about what he believes to be true it, it's original automatically. 
uh, because all of us can bring that different perspective to bear. Uh, but ah. pairing, pairing with that originality also comes the excellence. Uh, so Dante isn't just, uh, you know, somebody at their computer keyboard who has no life experience trying to, um, trying to change the world, thinking that they can see things that nobody else has seen. Uh, Dante isn't trying to do it all on his own. He sees himself as the heir and the participant in a great tradition that has gone before him, that he has, has taken in and has imbibed and has allowed to mold his soul. And now he can become a part of that conversation because he understands it. Well said. And let's talk about that word understanding uh, because there's a, a bit of symbolism that I wanted to get your take on. It's my my favorite thing. It's very high level. You know, I'm, I'm not learned or well-read enough in uh, the Divine Comedy to really drill down on specifics. But the the concept of where hell is located, mm -hmm. where paradise is located. As you say, he starts, uh, you know, on earth and, and has to descend into the, the, through the seven circles of hell and all that. Mm -hmm. um, and then asc ascends into paradise, uh, you know, going through purgatory up to the, the tallest peak of, uh, of uh, purgatory and then uh, going what on his tour through the planets and the going beyond time and space and all that right sounds like gandalf um, right from the lowest dungeon to the right <laughs> i passed out i have been sent back in time i've been sent back yes there you go <laughs> in in what must be visually the strangest uh moment in the fellowship of the ring movie uh including galadriel's moment um uh okay where was i oh yeah okay so this this concept of where heaven and hell are located it's one of my favorite things because I want to talk about Galileo for a second who came yeah. about what, two, two and a half centuries after uh, Dante. And we have this common popular conception of what Galileo did and why he was excommunicated and killed. Uh, and it's in the common telling, it's because he, uh, he dethroned earth from its valued position at the center of the universe. Earth was thought of in that uh, Ptolemaic tradition as the center of the universe. Uh, when in fact, in reality, it was exactly the opposite. And if you read Dante, you get a lot better sense of where the medieval world actually was when it comes to the symbolism of astronomy. Uh, so we think of Galileo's dethroning the earth from its place of uh, priority, its position of, uh, of power in the, in the center of the universe, where, no, that's actually the opposite of what it was. The earth being the center of the universe what meant that it was the most debased yep. uh, place in the universe. It was the least godly. You have to ascend beyond time and space to get to God to get to heaven. Whereas on earth, you start on the surface and descend and descend and descend. It's the core. It's literally the center of the universe. That's the most debased and earthly, least godly place in all of, um, in all of the universe, right? Yep. There was one writer who described it as, uh, uh, the earth was, in the medieval tradition, 
at or very literally the anal aperture of the universe. This is the dirtiest, <laughs> most base yeah, all, because part of all the universe. The things right? have fallen down into the earth. Yeah. So here, this is this is uh, Paradiso, Canto twenty-two. Uh, he has gone through the seven heavens and he's passed beyond Saturn. And before he goes into the realm of the fixed stars where the angels dwell, Beatrice tells him that he can look back. And so he's mm. out at the outer edge of the solar system slash the, the material universe slash the, the realms of heaven. Uh, and so Beatrice says, you are so close to the ultimate salvation, Beatrice began, that your eyes should be able to see all clearly and sharply. And so before you go further in, and notice that it's in and not out, look back below and see how much of creation I have already set under your feet, so that your heart presents itself as joyfully as ever it may to the triumphant crowd, which comes in gladness through this circle of ether. Dante says, I turned my eyes back through every one of the seven spheres and saw the globe, which looked such a miserable thing that I smiled. And I recognize that the best opinion about it is that which makes least of it. And the man whose thoughts are elsewhere can truly be called just. Hmm. So he looks back and he sees the little speck, right? That Carl Sagan blue dot. And he says, that's, that's, every, that's my life. That's all of these people that are criticizing me. That's all of the people that have exiled me from Florence. Those are all of the, the people that said I would never amount to anything, et cetera, et cetera. All of my troubles, all of my worries is that little speck here in this huge, vast kingdom uh, of God's glorious, blessed souls and angels. And, and, and that's what I'm worried about. Um, that, yeah, there's, it's, it's completely different. Like the uh, hell is at the center of the earth, symbolically in Dante, precisely because if hell is where Satan is, then Satan is the furthest away from God. So that's where you put him. Uh, is at the center of the earth, which means that we're just like a little bit above that. Uh, and the the idea is not that Galileo is persecuted for telling the truth to this uh, oppressive church structure. Uh, that's completely false and exploded myth, just like the myth that the earth, that everybody thought the earth was flat. Um, I mean, there it is. I mean, in this poem, in he this knew poem, it was he says, there's the globe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, Galileo was, was persecuted because he didn't have enough evidence and because he was a jerk uh, and he insulted <laughs> and he insulted his patron uh, and made everyone mad at him because he didn't know how to play with, nicely with others. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned Galileo. The other poem that is sort of in the same family as Divine Comedy is, of course, Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, we have mm. this journey through hell and chaos and, and into earth. And one of the things Milton is doing is trying to rewrite uh, the Divine Comedy in a post-Galilean, post-Copernican universe. That uh, Milton uh, is framing this narrative in a world of vast space and not in the world of the crystalline spheres. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's a link between these two books. But the, yeah, this idea is that the earth is, it's important in the sense that it's the place that God chose to become incarnate, but that it's not important in itself. What the, that God chose to become incarnate as a human being for the medievals says more about God's absolute grace and mercy and condescension than it does about, oh, how great and powerful human beings are. 
It's the opposite. It's the smallness of the place that makes God's mercy so magnificent. And I, I don't necessarily want to go too far down the uh, theological rabbit hole here, um, but it this this conception is one that I find somewhat troubling because mm-hmm. oh, like on Dante's own terms, mm-hmm. uh, because as you said, the the final circle of hell, the worst of the seven deadly sins, is that of pride, mm-hmm. and the way that the temptation in thinking the way that Dante wants us to think uh, is when you say this life is debased and worrying about the things of this world is, uh, is trivial at best, right? And, um, and sinful at worst, it can lead some to the, the prideful arrogance of, Hey, you know what? I've got it figured out. I'm not even worried about this world or this life, you little small minded Mm -hmm. uh, devil, you, I am enlightened. I Mm -hmm. am, you know, the person who's figuring it all out. And it's, uh, it's a tough tightrope to walk. And I'm not sure where Dante would have been on that, how I would have liked, you know, conversing with him or hearing about his worldview and his view of the people around him. It is, I think it is a, a tension or a paradox, because I mean, it's sort of like with Socrates and Plato that Plato in the Republic has Socrates throw out all of the myth makers because they're liars. Uh, And then within the Republic, he tells like two or three new myths. Uh, So how much, how seriously should we take them (laughs) in this regard? Um, For somebody that says it's, it's useless all told to spend my life worrying about these temporal things. He spends over a third of his book about everything talking about earthly politics. Uh, and he's constantly yeah. inserting these little critiques of uh, his contemporary culture. So it, you do have to sort of take both sides and say, ultimately, yes, the eternal is what matters. But once you place the eternal in its first rank, then you can also see everything else accurately. And you shouldn't just yeah. be turned towards the eternal because part of your mission in this world is to uh, live in the place that God has placed you. I, I, I don't agree with Dante about everything theologically. I do think that the earth, um, that our earthly life and particularly human beings have uh, a more exalted place than Dante or many of the medievals might give them. So for instance, one of the things you hear uh, is the, the pseudo Dionysus and his uh, hierarchies of angels. In in his uh, choirs of angels, the the archangel is the second lowest rank. Um, which goes against the Greek, which RK means the first or the the top. Right. Um, but yeah, so when the archangel Gabriel comes to announce the fact that God is going to become a human being, many medievals will take this to say, well, look how big God's kingdom is apart from us, that even this, like all of the other angels are too busy doing too much important work. And that only like only an archangel, it's that's the level of importance that this is happening. And I I don't think that's scriptural. I don't think that that's the the best interpretation of the Christian text or tradition, Uh, but it is present and it is attention. So that might be something that we should critique Dante about here. But uh, that being said, you also have to wonder if it's more a a rhetorical hyperbolic point than it is uh, a real you should live your life this way sort of a point. I mean, I think of Boethius too. Boethius in late antiquity also has a lot of commonality with with 
Dante in dwelling on earthly tribulations versus the eternal perspective, um, sitting in his prison cell in Theodoric the Goth's uh, imperial uh, capital, waiting to be executed for being a an, a civil servant with integrity. Uh, and maybe it's just a rhetorical overcorrection for what they see as a lot of people's uh, narrow-mindedness with regard to things that they can't see, uh, things that are invisible, but still actually logically of more importance than, you know, where's my next meal going to come from? Or uh, is this other artist talking badly about me? Maybe that's it. Yeah. Well, we've just gone for nearly an hour uh, answering this very question but I'm still going to ask it. Okay. okay. This is a, as a final thought on the divine comedy and wrapping up our conversation here. The question is how would you uh, convince somebody? What would you say? You, you've got, you, it's an elevator ride. You got 30 mm -hmm. seconds and you're trying to convince somebody that no, the divine comedy is worth reading now, even if you're not some medievalist scholar or, you know, a, a religious apologist mm -hmm. uh, or whatever it's worth reading now. Why? The Divine Comedy is a book that I've read a dozen times. Uh, and every single time I find new things in it. And it's not like this small detail that I didn't notice before. It's like every time I find a new perspective on how to reevaluate the whole thing. It's, it's such a layered and complex book but it's masked in this straightforward simplicity of language. If you get a good Dante translation, the Italian is not complicated. It's clear and straightforward. Uh, and so I, I would say the reason to read Dante, not just to read it once, but to read it over and over and over again, that's what makes it a work of genius is that it's, it's one of these things that you can keep finding things in as long as you're there. And, and it takes a great work of literature to be able to say that. And this particular work of literature has been around since the 1330s uh, and continues to be regarded as one of the greatest books ever produced by a human mind. So it's probably worth checking out. <laughs> there you go. Ding, elevator door opens. It's probably worth checking out. I love that. Now that's perfect. Um, you know what? On the next translation, in the next big translation that comes out, I'm going to find out who the publisher is. And I'm going to say, you know what? I, Austin Freeman said this. I want you to blurb it on the book. Probably. It's probably worth checking out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's perfect. All right, Austin, thank you so much for choosing the Divine Comedy. This is, uh, like I say, dangerously elevated territory for the Legendarium podcast. But uh, I, I think it was a fruitful discussion. And well, yeah, I really and if, enjoyed if it. If you guys want to come and talk more about it, then uh, come and... Uh, Take some classes with us at Houston Christian University. I was just going to say, yeah, we have to tell people where you're at and what you're doing. Uh, and you are now the chair of apologetics yep. at, at Houston Christian University. So you can go study with Austin. And you were telling me before we fired up the mics that this is, uh, you can do this remotely. Yes. Right? You so, don't have to be in Houston. Yeah, we do have a residential program, but the bulk of our apologetics uh program is uh, a remote asynchronous program where you can study with people like me, uh, Michael Ward, Holly Ordway, Mike Lacona, Nancy Piercy, all sorts of uh, big names, in including probably many of your listeners will recognize some of these names uh, as top-notch Tolkien and Inkling scholars. 
And so that's kind of our brand at Houston Christian University is, is cultural apologetics or imaginative apologetics, talking like we've been doing about Dante or Tolkien and uh, getting into those big picture meaning of life, uh, God and faith issues, and just being able to, to discuss them in fruitful ways that can hopefully change people's lives. That's what we do here. Yeah. So go check it out. I will find a link uh, to include in the show notes uh, for you to go check out that program at Houston Christian. Um, Austin, it's, I, I does two times count for me to say always a pleasure. Yes. Uh, it's been awesome to have you back on the show. All right. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Craig.